This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast. You don't win anything with kids, a Liverpool legend once said. Well, you do with Klopp's kids, as in his swan song season, Jürgen's Reds raise the red ribboned Carabao Cup aloft. Pochettino's blue billion pound bottle jobs beaten. We'll get the story of the first trophy of this term on today's Football Social Daily. And there's a bit of mystery surrounding Moisey as well. After questions within the West Ham fan base over whether he's the man for the job, some sources say he's set to stay after being offered a new deal. This is the award-winning Premier League podcast, Football Social Daily. My name's Niall McCorn, and alongside me, as always, Joel Tudor and Marley Anderson. Good morning, boys. How was the weekend? Morning, yes. Uh, weekend was all right, except the football. The football was terrible. Um, I nearly ruined my weekend. Um, but it's still, still no baby, still nothing nothing on that front. So, um, yeah, just had the football to concentrate on, which completely wrote off my Saturday night. But I have a conspiracy that your son is waiting for Newcastle to win a game before he comes out, so you might be waiting till next year. <laughs> hey, brilliant. I don't know, I think, who have we got next? I think we've got Luton at home next. Could be wrong. If you oh, don't got, win that, Christ. <laughs> well, we've got Blackburn away tomorrow night. We should, uh, we should win that, so... We're not too far from Blackburn, so maybe that's what he's waiting for. The Alan Shearer derby. Oh, that'd be that'd be nice actually if he was born tomorrow. <laughs> what are you going to call him, Alan? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I don't think there's been an Alan born in the UK since 1987. Well, he's he's contractually obliged <laughs> to grow up and be a darts player, isn't he? If he's called Alan, that proper old man's name, isn't it? <laughs> to be fair, I always think it's right of passage that you lose your first game supporting a club. I just think that has to be the way. No, well, I always say that like <clears throat> timing, timing is everything, right? So I'm obviously from Manchester. Well, not from Manchester, but I've lived in Manchester for nine years now. So my kid's going to be from Manchester. So I'm going to have a, comp- a, a fight on my hands to have him not grow up and support probably the most successful team in the world by the time he's 10. And that'd be Man City. Um, and then have Man United on the doorstep as well. And I've got to say, no, mate, we support this black and white team that live two and a half hours away. And they used to be really good at one point. But I grew up, when when you have your first memories of football, you know, you what are you, five, six, before you first remember something? When I was five and six, Newcastle's entertainers were the ones. Alan Shearer, Kevin Keegan, you know, Les Ferdinand, all these, like David Ginola and all these players. And we were challenging for the title. And obviously, it's been rubbish ever since. But when you fall in love for the first time with the game, you know you 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 want your team to win. So when we were challenging for the title, when I was five and six, I was like, "We're great! This is this is brilliant! We're a great team!" And then there was just twenty years of absolute crap after it. So then it was just like oh, I've played myself here. But from that point on, that that's it. That, that's your team, isn't it? You don't change from then on. So it's one of them where I've got to I've got to brainwash the kid as soon as he's physically old enough to to fall in love with Newcastle I just hope we're winning games at that point that's so class though how you can have a Mancunian in your household I love that for you absolutely love it <laughs> well my wife's a Mancunian so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm used to it so <laughs> it's just your, your family's just infiltrating into the Mancunian-ness it's the, it was always going to be Marley I'm sorry who does your wife's family support or does your wife support a team uh, my wife hates football. Um, her dad is. Her dad put them in Man United kits when uh, when she was uh, seven, eight, stuff like that. I think she 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 always proudly boasts that she um, she had a flag 
uh, when Man United won the treble in 1999. <laughs> I think they were, they were giving away free flags in the newsagents or something. So she uh, she had one of them, but she doesn't have it anymore. So, yeah. I do think it's interesting following the journey of supporting a football team and why you choose to support who you choose to support. And obviously, many Liverpool fans yesterday were at Wembley to watch their team win the Carabao Cup. They beat Chelsea by a goal to nil with a Virgil van Dijk header in the depths of extra time securing the victory. Let's talk about Liverpool's success before we come on to Chelsea's shortcomings, Joel. It's almost poetic that it was Virgil van Dijk that scored the winner in Jurgen Klopp's last season because when you think of the Jurgen Klopp era at Liverpool, he's probably the player that stands out the most. Yeah, 100%. I think he's gone through a bit of a turbulent time in the last three years, let's say, ever since he had that ACL injury at Everton. I think there's been a lot of people who've doubted him because obviously prior to that, he was far and wide probably the best defender in the world up until that point. And in this game, I know he had a little moment after the game when they won it saying, you know, they thought I was finished and started laughing and that kind of thing. I mean, let's let's not forget last season he was absolutely poor. This season he's been much better than he was. Of course, he's a great defender. He'll go down as one of the better Premier League defenders of all time, 100%. But I think if Jurgen Klopp didn't have Van Dijk in this era, they wouldn't have been half as successful as they have been. But then, I mean, when you look at their success, they probably haven't been as successful as they should have been regardless because they have a Manchester City literally cleaning up everything every single year. So when you take it with that perspective, he has been pivotal pivotal in their, in their defence and like I say, I think it's pretty admirable that his comeback from that injury has been really good. But I think for a defender to come back from an ACL injury is probably the best position to do it in because you're not really relying on that absolute burst of acceleration. It's more so using your mind to get ahead of the players that you're marking. So yeah, he's been, he has been colossal for them 100%. And that's the biggest compliment I'm going to give now. You're not getting anything more out of me. <laughs> do you think Liverpool deserves a victory? over the course of the 120 minutes. We'll come on to Jurgen Klopp bringing on the youngsters in a bit, Marley, but Chelsea certainly played their part in the first 90, but it was in extra time that they began to fall away. So on the basis of play, do you think that Liverpool were the rightful winners? Uh, maybe slightly. No, I wouldn't have had a problem with Chelsea winning it because I think it, it was just a, a properly good game um, for a nil-nil. It was one of the best nil-nils I've ever seen. It's more entertaining than a game that finishes 3-1 in, in some aspects because both teams had a go. They all had chances. There was, uh, I forget how many times the post was hit. I think it was two or three times. There was saves and everything. And it was it was one of them where genuinely I wouldn't have had a problem with any team winning it. Um, but it was interesting, you know, the, the, the slight lag came from Chelsea um, and the, you know, all the, the expensive squad that they talk about has been put together and they couldn't last. And, you know, the one thing I I, I do like about the whole situation, and I know, I know it's kind of getting, you know, all, all the headlines, but I do love that Jurgen Klopp put the kids on, put these young lads on, because I, I looked at the bench um, as the lineups came out and I was like, whoa, like Simakas and Gomez are the only two that have any real experience, like, I remember Neil Dans and and Bobby Clark's dads playing football. Like, it make me makes me feel well old. Like I know Lee Clark as a player and a manager. Um and his his son Bobby is coming on. And then Neil Dans, who played for I think it was Birmingham, um, and his son's coming on as well. And I'm like, wow, I'm, how old am I again? Am I forty or <laughs> not quite not quite there yet? But it is 
it was good to see him trust them because I kind of expected Gomez and Simicast to come on and the rest of them to not really play much part, maybe play 10 minutes or whatever, or come on in extra time. But I think with 20 minutes to go, he took off. Um, uh, I forget who he took off now, but he put Bobby Clark on in midfield. I think it was Elliot he might have took off. Um, or Connor Bradley, I think he took off and he put Elliot back into into the forward three. And I was like, oh, he's he's trusting these lads. And then Dan's came on and McConnell, I think, came on as well. And I was like, you know, you know what? Fair play. Absolutely fine. Because you're trusting these teenagers in probably the biggest game they'll play all season. Um, if not for the for the whole Liverpool career. And, you know, one of them went close. I think it was Dan's with the header in extra time where uh, Petkovic made a good save. Um, and it was it was just good to see him get see them get trusted because you don't know how kids are gonna um, respond in big games like big pressure games. Like imagine making your debut at Wembley in a cup final where the cup is in the balance and the game is in the balance. It's nil nil against a, a team that's been assembled for a, you know a billion pound. It's it's as big as it gets. Um, so that man management from Klopp was was absolutely spot on. Jurgen Klopp said it's the most special trophy that he's won in his career. And this is a man who's won the league and the Champions League. I do wonder whether that's because it's set against the backdrop of it being his final season as the Liverpool manager. But what I would say, and I agree with Marley in everything he says about bringing the youngsters on, Clark and Dans and McConnell and these young players who most people would never have heard of before Sunday. And I don't know whether this comes back to Chelsea, and we'll talk about them in a sec, there was just this strange kind of spirituality about the game. And I don't like using that word in football because I think you can affect anything in the game is what I'm trying to say. As soon as those young players came on, most people would associate that with risk. That's a big risk. Liverpool had 12 players injured, for example, from the first team. So he didn't really have much of a choice, Jurgen Klopp. But I just felt watching the game, especially in that last last half of extra time, that last 15 minutes, I just thought Liverpool were going to win this. I think when you look at the start of the game, when there was all the team news announcements of the fact that, you know, Sabozlai and Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold and Alisson, all these players were missing for Liverpool. I think that cranked up the pressure even more for Chelsea because Chelsea had their fully strength side out, apart from maybe Thiago Silva, who I don't really know if he's fully strength anymore or not. But for the most part, their team was ready to go. And I mentioned last week that if Poch lost this game in a certain manner, I think his job might be on the line. And I think this was probably even worse than what I would envision. Because if it was a fully strength Liverpool side and it was nil-nil and they ended up scoring an extra time, I think you could say, okay, fair enough, we got beaten by a really good fully strength Liverpool side. But like you two have just alluded to, it was the fact that they brought on half the youth team. Klopp sat there on the touchline almost just enjoying the occasion as if to say, if it goes either way, it goes either way. I'm just going to allow them to enjoy the occasion. Whereas Chelsea are almost so laser focused on we cannot lose this. We cannot lose this rather than we, we can win it. I think it just really affected them, the whole occasion of it all. And then I just saw after when they were collecting the medals and Pochettino purposely avoided Todd Bowley, who was just in the distance. I think there's a lot of frostiness was going on in there now. I, on it, Pochettino just There's looks, a lot of people I think it's hard when you walk that point. Yeah, you know I, I agree, Marley. Yeah, I think it's no. Hard. No, he definitely saw him. He saw him. I'm telling you, he saw him. He's a big guy. But he Todd wasn't exactly he stood saw leaning over there. the barrier, was yeah. he? Like, come and shake he, my hand. They missed it. It was just one of them. He was looking the wrong way, and then the, the moment's gone. Mm. I thought. I agree with you, though. I, I I do agree with you, 
the look on the Chelsea players' faces, almost like they weren't, they were gutted clearly, but they weren't distraught or devastated. I just think they've accepted that they're not a great team. And that is just such a strange thing to say about a Chelsea side who over 20 years have chiseled out this mentality of winning at all costs and, and being at the top whether that means spending money from the ownership or whether that means bringing in leaders into the squad or signing the right manager, that is completely ebbed away. It's completely gone. Chelsea, I didn't see a team of winners on the pitch yesterday. I saw a team of losers. That's what I saw. A team of losers. You know, the biggest difference between both sides, I've realised, is that, and I'm surprised with Pochettino with this, he's not creating a spirit at Chelsea. Because when you looked at the two teams, Liverpool have a spirit even when they had the kids on, you felt like they had more going for than they were favourites. When I look at Chelsea's team, I don't see a cohesion. I don't see spirit. I don't see a morale. And I thought with Pochettino's ability at Tottenham to create that and create that real cohesion as a team, it's like he's not able to influence it. And I'm, I'm really baffled why, because they're all young players. It's not like there's many, many egos in there that he has to manage. He probably comes into there with a bit more aura than probably he has done, for example, the Paris Saint-Germain job that he went into. That's why I'm quite surprised that regardless of even if they're not playing well, I'm surprised he's not created that lift that they needed. And that's why I'm, that's where I will question him because I thought he was one of the best in the business when it comes to that. Whenever you saw him at Tottenham, all the players absolutely idolised and loved him. I don't know if that's the case at Chelsea because you don't really see too much. But I really felt like Chelsea needed this because I can imagine the scenes for them if they would have won it and all the young players would have started believing and Pochettino would have started believing in, and it would have created so much more cohesion. But I think that was the biggest difference between the two sides. It wasn't the money. It was the spirit that one team clearly had and one team clearly hadn't. Totally agree with that. Chelsea just looked hollow and lifeless. And Gary Neville on Sky Sports commentary described Pochettino's Chelsea as the blue billion pound bottle jobs and maybe it does hold some water we'll talk about it next on football social daily as we do our weekly feature get in the sea which is our chance to have a whinge and a complain about the weekend's action we'll come on to it next see you after this This is Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. Thanks for joining us. If this is the first time you've ever listened to FSD, we appreciate your company and you won't miss an episode if you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you are fresh to this show, then you won't know that on a Monday, we always do this feature. It's called Get In The Sea. Basically, it's a chance for Marley, Joel and myself to complain about whatever we see fit relating to the weekend's football. Normally, it's Premier League action, but seeing as it was a big cup final yesterday between Chelsea and Liverpool, that's more likely than not to take centre stage. And I mentioned before the break about a comment made by Gary Neville, the former Manchester United defender who was on commentary duty for Sky Sports, who after Virgil van Dijk's winner had sealed the trophy for Liverpool, called Chelsea the blue billion pound bottle jobs. That is an incredible comment to make about a manager, a team. It was one of those pieces of commentary that stopped me in my tracks I just couldn't believe it was coming out of his mouth. And I know, Marley, that that's something that you've got a bit of an issue with. This is the, the thing for me that can get in the sea. I don't like this this new sort of thing of every time any team loses a game, oh, they've bottled it. Oh, bottle jobs. 
like Chelsea turned up in that final. It was a good, good game. Any team could have won it. Um, they had chances. Yeah, you know, they come, a few come off the post and you can probably make the case, oh, well, if they weren't bottle jobs, those chances would have gone in. But I don't think there was a, a clear one. Cole Palmer should have scored from five yards, but the goal he made, made an absolutely incredible save uh, in the first half. Um, it's Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just the mentality of... Oh, you've you've not won a game, so you've bottled it, and that isn't. It just doesn't sit right for me. I just think it's it's very very harsh on Chelsea to um, to call them bottle jobs when they. I mean, technically, if you've bottled something, you were in a position to win it. As in, you could say Arsenal bottled the league last season because they were five or six or eight points clear or whatever it was at, at one stage. So yeah, you know, even if you can call that harsh. Technically, they should have won it because they were in the lead. Chelsea were never in the lead in this game. It was always nil-nil until the, what, 117th minute when Virgil van Dijk sticks a header past, uh, past the goalkeeper from a corner. You know, this this isn't, in my opinion, a bottle job, but it's just, it's something that's instantly there. Um, and in the modern day, when you've got someone on commentary who, you know, had a rivalry with, with Chelsea in his playing career um, and wants to create headlines with what he says you know that is ultimately just easy pickings for him and he's, he's gone for it and it's a line that pulls headlines and whatever but I don't think it's uh, it's quite true well from my perspective actually I thought that Gary Neville was leaning towards Chelsea in the tone of his commentary I feel like naturally as a Manchester United man he wanted Chelsea to beat their greatest rivals Liverpool yet it was the commentary from the other side Jamie Carragher a Liverpool legend that was winding you up, Joel. Yeah, and that moves nicely onto my get in the sea, which is Jamie Carragher. And not just Jamie Carragher, but just players that end up getting put on co-coms for their team. Because if it's a player like Jamie Carragher, who's a Liverpoolian, who's played for Liverpool all his life, and it's a cup final, do you think he's going to be impartial? Or do you think he's going to really remove that massive Liverpoolian bias from his head and look at things on a totally level playing field? It's not going to happen. And at the end of the game, people are going to start calling me, you know, Ebenezer with what I'm about to say here. But <laughs> the way in which he reacted in, in terms of these glowing terms about Liverpool and how they won it and all these superlatives to describe the victory and how amazing it was. As a neutral, well... People are going to say I'm not neutral, but I'm sure as neutral fans and just for me watching it as a viewer, it's just nauseating. And this isn't the first time it's happened with associated players from Liverpool. For example, Steve McManaman, when he's commentating on a Liverpool game, he, he cannot be impartial. Every single decision is Liverpool's. Every foul, it shouldn't have happened to Liverpool. And for someone watching it, it just creates an annoyance because I'm there to listen to a commentary. And now you'll be able to tell me this better because that's what you do as your day job. But for me, as a viewer, I want to hear total impartiality. I want to hear both sides. I don't want to... It's almost like having a a person who supports conservatives speaking on your telly on a news broadcast and pretending that he's a level even playing field, you know that he's for that party. Of course, he's going to be biased towards it and their policy and what they stand for. So as a viewer, I, I genuinely hate it. 
I think Gary Neville, because I, I can already hear in my earphone people going to be screaming, yeah, but Joel, what about Gary Neville? He he does a lot of co-commentary. He supports United. He goes on the other end of the scale, which is that he overcompensates for impartiality to the point where he goes overly negative about his own team. And that creates even more annoyance. And that's probably where the skill comes from, of almost removing your bias aside to literally just say what you see. That's it. Just painting a picture for the viewer, which is something that we haven't seen. I don't want to hear your opinions about how much you love your club. We know that, but just give us insight a little bit. I don't want to hear. Like, it's not Liverpool fan TV. Do you know what I mean? It's Sky Sports and it's neutral. I do agree with what you say about Jamie Carragher on occasion. I think he's a fantastic pundit. He does have moments where he says silly things, all pundits do. And when you're in the firing line under the bright lights in the Sky Studio, you're going to get things wrong and you're going to get hammered for it on social media. That's part of the job and that's part of why I think he gets paid about a million pounds a year for that job. But also, I think that as good as a pundit as he is, I think he's a terrible co-commentator. Speaks with too much emotion on commentary and that can grate on the viewership. The kind of Liverpool-leaning bias is natural because obviously his affiliation with the club, but also that leans generally into the Liverpool fan base as a whole. When it comes to Liverpool, it doesn't matter what the competition is. It doesn't matter what the argument is about on social media. Liverpool fans have this gated mentality where it's us against you. It's kind of us against the world mentality. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Even if they know they're wrong, they'll keep arguing the case just because. And I think that's just the mentality of the city. And as someone who doesn't know much about Liverpool considering I've never lived there and only visited there a few times. Maybe I'm making a massive sweeping generalisation. But then again, I might be spot on, who knows? And I think Carragher completely gets gobbled up by the whole, we are Liverpool, this means more. And as a commentator, which you are supposed to be neutral, I think it's impossible when you've played that many games for Liverpool to be entirely neutral. But I do think you need to make sure you leave emotion at the door when you go and do your work, which is exactly what he was doing. He was working there. He wasn't there as a Liverpool fan. He was there representing Sky Sports as an employee. And I think that's the difference. That's what Sky Sports have done, though, this last few years. They've gone down the whole tribalism route thing. And you see it when there's a big game on. They have sort of, you know, obviously biased guys in the in the comms as well. And I, I'd be thinking yesterday, and I, I did think at the time, OK, Carragher's on commentary, number one, why? But number two, if you're going to have him on commentary, where's the Chelsea representative? Um, because there is no one. They had Gary Neville. Like, Why is Gary Neville there? If Gary Neville should be on core commentary by himself or not at all, because if you're going to have Carragher, you have to have someone from Chelsea, like Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank or Frank Lampard or someone that's played for Chelsea in the past. But there were none, even Daniel Sturridge was in the studio and he was kind of weird as well because he played for both. But that makes him a perfect guy to put in the studio. But why can you not put him on comms to, to, to be biased as well? And not to, not to be biased, but to be uh, level-headed as well with both, both ways. But... The one thing that got me about Carragher was um, his his he had an interaction with Mike Dean over why um, Endo was given offside for the uh, the disallowed goal, and it ended up like a a weird little spat between them. It was it was bizarre. Mike Dean said, "Look, Endo has started offside, then blocked Levi Colwell, and that's where he should have been." And Carragher was like, yeah, but where do you see it given everywhere else? And he was like, well, Jamie, that's not the point because that's why I'm just explaining why he's been given offside. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's not and been Carragher, given in the last 20 games. So uh, let's ignore it again this time yeah. in a cup final. And Car- Carragher basically just ended up going, oh, well, cheers for that, Mike, whatever. And it was like, it was so, um, 
it was so dismissive. And I know Mike Dean is a polarizing figure and what have you, what have you. But at the end of the day, Mike Dean knows more about the rules than you do and and me and anyone else, even though I might think he's an absolute divvy at times and loves a headline. He knows more. And that's and the, the goal should have been disallowed. Endo was offside and blocked Colwell. The biggest thing about that, Marley, is that you can hedge your bets that if it was any other club, Carragher wouldn't have fiercely defended it like that's he what did. I mean, and, and that's and, the point. In and itself. that's why he shouldn't shouldn't have been on comms because when when something as as big a decision as that goes against you and you have a dog in the fight, there is no way you can you can stay impartial, and that makes you sound amateurish, I think. Um, and that's that's what happened in that little. Little period of um, of the game when Van Dijk thought he'd won it for um, for Liverpool when he scored the header. I mean, if we're throwing commentary and Carragher into the sea, his line when Virgil Van Dijk scored, it's not all about money. And obviously, he was talking about Chelsea having signed a billion pounds worth of players and the Liverpool kids being on the pitch at the same time. But the irony of the world's most expensive defender of all time heading the ball into the back of the net in a stadium which costs hundreds of millions of pounds on a TV station which costs £70 a month to subscribe to. No, Jamie, it's not all about money. But I did think that that was uh, maybe one of those emotional comments like I'm talking about. It was an emotional comment. I mean, I can see where he was coming from and what he was trying to get at. But the irony of it was not lost on me, that's for sure. Can I just say as well that um, the average age of Chelsea's squad was younger than Liverpool's? But it's not all <laughs> about money. It's everything about money. So this whole... This whole Klopp's kids thing is is actually not it's it's not true really because Chelsea had a younger squad. You know what I loved after the game as well is that Jurgen Klopp mentioned the quote of "You can't win anything with kids," and I don't think he realised that that was an ex Liverpool legend, Alan Hansen, who actually said that about Manchester United, their biggest rival. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And about the class of '92, no no quote has ever aged worse. I know because it's Klopp's last season. And because of the manner of the way they won with the kids on the pitch and Van Dyke scoring the winner. And Van Dyke actually, you could see him puff his cheeks out after he scored. That was a real relief for him. And he said that that felt as big to him as any of the trophies that he's won. And Jurgen Klopp said the same. And maybe it does feel like that to Liverpool and their fans. And fair play if they feel like that. But I don't like how the importance of the Carabao Cup changes on a sliding scale from season to season. When Manchester City win three or four in a row, oh, it's only the Carabao Cup. Manchester United win their first trophy in ages and their first trophy under their new manager last season. Oh, it's only the Carabao Cup. Liverpool win the Carabao Cup. Suddenly it's as big a victory as winning the Champions League. Now that's not just me throwing mud at Liverpool fans because of their reaction to this, because as I say, they're entitled to react to winning the trophy in any which way they choose. They're the ones that won it at the end of the day. The point I'm trying to make is the Carabao Cup and its importance seems to change like every single season. It's like, where where do we sit with this? I think you bang on in the sense that Guardiola's actually spoken about this a lot, where he says, I win four in a row and everyone just expects it. They think that it comes out of the sky and we just go and win it. And it's, an, it's you know, it's default every single year. And I think it's 100% that it's relative depending on who wins it. Last year when United won it, it was just, it's a, it's a Disney trophy. It doesn't mean much. It's only a Carabao Cup. Like, shouldn't you be going for the bigger ones? And then you heard the commentary yesterday of, oh, it's the first of many this season, number one. In, like, you know, as if it's like this momentum building kind of victory. I think this trophy belongs to the fans because maybe people in football are very dismissive of it. But 
to go and be able to have a day at Wembley and to experience your team in that kind of capacity doesn't happen very often. I mean, even for Man United these days, it doesn't happen often going to Wembley. Newcastle United, how long that was since you guys were at Wembley. Like these occasions are rare. And although people can say, yeah, is it, you know, it's only a Carabao Cup. You only have to win about three or four games and you're basically at the final. Sure, but it means a lot in terms of momentum. It means a lot in terms of adding a trophy to your cabinet. It means a lot in terms of confidence and momentum. So that's why I'm not as dismissive of it, but it does feel like whenever, for example, Man City win it every single year, no one bats an eyelid because it feels like it's the start of quadruple talk and it feels like it's the start of, you know, the norm happening. And that's why I think Guardiola feels very hard done by because he feels like it's one brush for him and another brush for everybody else whether you agree with that or not. It's certainly interesting. And actually, there was quite a few things we could throw in the sea this week. So let's deviate away from the Carabao Cup final. The Sheffield United players, they lost again to Wolves, this time 1-0. But I mean, it's a clear sign, isn't it, when two players are getting in each other's faces like that on their own team, Marley? And you'll know all about this as a Newcastle fan. It's a clear sign that things aren't going well. Yeah, um... Judging by uh, Sheffield United's performances this season, I'm not sure why it's took them so long to have a fight with each other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think it was Vinicius Souza and uh, I forget who the other guy was. It might have been Jack Robinson or someone like that. But uh, yeah, it was barely even a fight. What do you call that? A fight? Jesus. I mean, little little spat. Kieran Dyer and Lee Boyer did it properly. They had a proper scrap. Flipping haymakers flying everywhere. It was like watching two windmills collide. There was just flying everywhere, fist flying everywhere. Gareth Barry actually got involved and, and pulled it apart for Aston Villa in that game. So And then Shearer absolutely tore through them. Did they both get red cards for that? <laughs> yeah. That is, such, that is like literally you know pushing what? the self-destruct button, isn't it? Oh, yeah. So that game, was it was it's hilarious because people forget, right? So that happened after about half an hour. I think we were 2-0 down. That happened. So we went down to nine. Um, And in the same game was the game where... Stephen Taylor, I think their Aston Villa striker went round the goalkeeper and Stephen Taylor blocked it on the line with his arm, but then went down and he held his rib as if he'd been, like, it looked like he'd been shot. And he went down and he was like, oh, and he did like some sort of crappy actor thing. And everyone forgets it's the, it's the same game. So that is ultimate, like, it's like people talk about banter here as a club. That was our banter game. That 90 minutes, two men sent off, one trying to win a BAFTA for... <laughs> For giving away a penalty for um, a red card. So wait, Boya, Dyer both got sent off. And then Stephen Taylor got sent off. Yeah, we ended up with eight men. <laughs> and, we, and obviously they scored the penalty as well. So it ended up 3-0. So we lost 3-0 at home to Aston Villa and we ended up with eight men. <laughs> and the the best thing about it is I've heard a story that Alan Shearer went into the dressing room after the game and beat seven bells out of the boat Apparently, for having a scrap. Yeah, but it, him and uh, Sunes almost uh, like fought each other to, to try and fight... Uh, Bowyer and Dyer before it so you know Sunes was double hard you know he was a terrible manager but hard as nails so yeah he went in and threatened to batter the pair of them as well because he said I think there's a quote from him if you I think it's a, if you want a fight fight with me He's, yeah he, he said I'll have Buffy in the car park now or something like that there's a quote about it you have to research it but it's uh, it's it's one of them quotes where you you know sometimes you see a quote and you go did that actually get said with Graham Souness when he was threatening to batter someone, it absolutely got said, and that's only the half of it. I can tell you that. 
All right, that's it for getting the C. Next up, we're going to talk about David Moyes, who over the weekend was allegedly offered a new contract by West Ham United, but he's yet to make a decision. We'll talk about our thoughts on that after this on FSD. Final part of today's Football Social Daily. This is an award-winning Premier League podcast and you can keep in touch with us on social media. The links are in the description. David Moyes, someone we've spoken about a lot on this podcast over the last few weeks, Joel, allegedly has been offered a new contract by current club West Ham United. The West Ham fan base seems to us to be split. Some people want Moyes out because they can't hack the style of play anymore. Others want to see David Moyes stay because he's won them a European trophy and he's got them consistently in the top 10 of the Premier League in the last few seasons. You were someone who actually thinks West Ham should back David Moyes and it looks like they might well have done that. According to reports, they've offered him a new contract. What do you make of that? Yeah, when I said back, I mean at least at the end of the season. I don't believe he should be sacked anytime soon, but it actually doesn't surprise me, West Ham. They almost feel like a bit Crystal, Palace get, Pal- Crystal Palace-esque in the way they approach managerial changes. David Moyes, don't get me wrong, I mean, he's done more than Crystal Palace managers have done, but I'm just more in the boat of just respecting what he's done and having perspective as I've maintained in the last couple of weeks. You only have to look at the table to realise they're not actually doing that bad and their season could actually be very, very good in the light of things. And with that being said, if they do offer him a new contract though, I think this would be absolutely detrimental to the next year. Because I can imagine if he's in the hot seat, if he's in the dugout come August 2024, and they start losing the first one or two games, he'll be gone. And the fans will let him... The fans, if you think the fans are bad now, in terms of the little cohorts that are wanting him out, trust me, when it gets to that stage where they keep him in, the club have made an active choice to keep him in, and he still doesn't manage to win them over, it will get so toxic at that place. That's why I'm saying, why not just be proactive now? Why not just do almost... I don't want to say what what Liverpool have done, because Jurgen Klopp's chosen his path, and that's his choice permanently but I mean why not just say to the fans now okay he's not going to be given a new contract because we want to start planning ahead for the future let's try and end this season as highly as we can I just think West Ham owners feel like they have such a loyalty to him and owe him such loyalty because of what he's done in the last two years that they're almost pretty much happy to continue on until it gets very very bad but like I say I mean the owners are probably looking at the season and the table and thinking we're not doing so bad although we're getting a little bit of external pressure from the fans it's not as bad as what they're saying it is. So I can see both sides of the coin but honestly I think offering him a new contract would just end in tears to be honest it's a strange one because West Ham are really struggling at the moment in the Premier League we've spoken about their results since the turn of the year Marley and how they've been really poor by the standards of a club who want to finish in the top 10 of the Premier League I think they've got a game tonight they take on Brentford at London Stadium I do wonder what the atmosphere will be like at London Stadium for that game even though it hasn't been officially confirmed that Moyes has been offered a new contract it feels like maybe Some might voice their frustrations tonight at the home game against Brentford because we saw a banner in the away end last weekend at Nottingham Forest where they lost 2-0 saying Moyes out. So we know that the fan base is split. I just wonder how that might manifest itself in the wake of Moyes allegedly being offered a new deal. Mm, It'll be an interesting uh, atmosphere and game really because it's 
it's almost overshadowed the the build up um and you know the the fallout from the last game and the banners and stuff like that um is it's one of them where it, it you're almost starting like a goal behind because you've got the neg- the negative atmosphere type of thing overshadowing everything Brentford are improving as well it's probably the worst time to play Brentford because they you know they're getting better since Ivan Tony came back into the team and um and and that kind of th- obvious like threat they've got I think Paqueta's still out so you know the the ingredients are there for West Ham to have an awful night if they lose to Brentford that atmosphere is going to turn toxic and if you've offered him a new contract it might affect Number one, whether you rescind it, or number two, if it's been signed, does he second guess himself? Um, does Moyes even want to continue? Because will he want to carry on if 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 he's getting, you know, if he's getting this this negativity? I I don't know. Well, that, that's an interesting point because the reports went on to say, and I should have probably said this at the start, that he hasn't accepted a new deal or signed a new deal. He's been offered one, and he hasn't actually made a choice yet on whether he wants to stay. And maybe that will come into his thinking, the reaction. Of the fan base, I think Moyes knows though that he's he's unlikely to, to succeed more than he has. Like, like, like he sort of mentioned in the press conference when he was asked asked about it. Like, what else do what else is there for West Ham to go and do? They've finished in the Europa League places. They've gone into the Europa League knockout stages. I think um, they've won the Conference League. What more is there? What more can he do? He could repeat that again, but are West Ham good enough to win the Europa League in the next two, three years? I wouldn't think so, especially with the teams dropping out of the Champions League. You know, teams like AC Milan and teams like, you know, Barcelona have been in it two years ago. So are West Ham going to compete with those teams? I don't think so. So I'd be thinking long and hard and, and thinking if I was Moyes and I'd be thinking, you know, I've done a bloody good job here. And maybe time away from the club will, will um, as he said, you know, be careful what you wish for. Because if you're scrapping 13th or 14th, David Moyes is sat at home with that on his CV of winning the Europa League. And he looks stronger every day West Ham fail. Every time West Ham lose, he looks stronger in the future. So it's a bit um, it's a bit of a weird situation. It's But it's one that will overshadow West Ham's rest of the season if they don't sort it pretty quickly well David Moyes allegedly has been offered a new contract according to reports will he sign it we simply do not know but what we do know is that we'll be back tomorrow and the day after and the day after that here on Football Social Daily so hit subscribe or follow now and that way you'll never miss an episode of this podcast if this is your first time joining us thanks for listening and let us know what you think if there's anything you want us to talk about on Football Social Daily any topics you want us to discuss get in touch with us via social media the links to all of our social media channels are in the description and also there's a link to the free to join telegram group so click that download the app and come and join the conversation there but from joel marley and myself that's it for today's football social daily we'll see you tomorrow football social daily is a voice work sport production for the sports social podcast network